You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Here's our opening line of our passage today. It's this, um, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, verse 27 follows verse 26. Some of you are like, thanks for that, Robbie. That's really helpful. Yeah, I know, I know. But just think, we think of the context of what got us here to verse 27, and even in verse 21, uh, to live as Christ. And then we saw in our text again from last week, um, Paul's like, listen, I, I want to die, because if I die, I'm with Christ in heaven, and that's like the best. But I think it's best if I remain here with you, because then I will be here for your progress and joy in the faith. I was like, I want to go to heaven, but I'm going to stay here now because, again, God has purpose for me to see your sanctification um, in Christ. And he says, and why for that? So that your lives might give glory to Jesus Christ. And so it's so interesting. This is the context of just God's working and through Paul and through the church at Philippi. And then this leads into verse 27. He says this, now only, though, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this is one of these statements that when I read it in my Bible, when my eyes are set upon it, I have it highlighted and there's a pen mark in my Bible because it kind of pops off the page to me as soon as I read it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Now why does that happen to me? Because what I know is about to happen is the diagnosis of the heart is coming. The diagnosis of the heart and then the prescription of the heart and life is coming as well. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. It's interesting too that a phrase like this appears in other epistles that Paul's writing, starting with Ephesians chapter 4. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Think of the, uh, the similarity in context of Philippians. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy. There it is again. Uh, conduct your life in a manner worthy. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. A manner worthy. And then in the letter to the church at Colossae, his prayer is, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit. So fascinating the repetition that Paul brings out in the desire for the church in Philippi, for the church in Colossae, for the church in Ephesus, and the church in, in Rome as well, as we see in the book of Romans. He desires us to walk in a manner worthy. It tells us how much Paul cares about this in his heart. When you see repetition in Scripture, it reveals much to us. But more importantly, loved ones, it tells us the Holy Spirit's heart for us and how much the Holy Spirit of God desires to see you and I uh, walking in a manner worthy um, of the Lord. So, as we initially consider this statement, um, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. How are you initially responding to that command, that imperative, this exhortation? Are you living a life worthy of the gospel? Some of you might hear this and be like, yeah, man, I'm killing it, like in a good way. Like, man, I, I, I got it going on. I'm gonna, some of you say, I'm not killing it. I feel like I'm being killed right now. Barely hanging on, man. I'm just like, oh, man, I don't want to see what's coming next because I'll just be so burdened by the weight of the things I'm not doing. 
Some of you, again, are in a place of encouragement. Just like, all right, I'm even not killing entirely, but things are going well and progressing in the Lord, and I feel like the gospel's making sense. I'm walking in a, in a more worthy manner. Others are like, no, no, I'm just so discouraged. I'm just so discouraged. I, I'm really trying to find a way to kind of keep going. And I, you know what? I want you to know it's okay to be in both places. In fact, I myself right now, I probably find myself a little bit of both. Actually, here's where I really find myself before the Lord. Point number one. In relation to verse 27, here is where I find myself. Oh, may my life be worthy of the gospel. Turning this from a command into a prayer right now, just in terms of our outline. Oh, Lord, may my life be worthy of the gospel. I don't have the strength. I don't have the wisdom. I don't have the intellect. I don't have the ability. I don't have the sufficiency. But God, I have you. And I have your word. And so my prayer becomes, oh, may my life be worthy of the gospel of the gospel. The first thing I want you to see about verse 27 is the word only. Only. It's in the first position of this verse and it's, it's, it's emphasized. There's emphasis then with it. Um, from this then, Paul means as the New Living translates, above all. So he's like, wait, only, pay attention, above all, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Uh, the word only serves as a warning from Paul too, right? You can kind of say, this is what Paul's doing. He's talking to the church of Philippi, exhorting them, and he's like, hey, look right here, look right here, look right here. And I ask you to look right here then as well, right? And Paul's saying, look right here, listen, listen, what's coming next? This is really, really important. Only, pay attention, above all, look here, wake up, wake up. Some of us, front row to back row, the reality is we need to wake up. Maybe some of us literally right now like need to wake up, you know. The things I see while I'm preaching, oh my, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, oh yeah. I got stories, man. But think about it, think about it. What's coming right now is one of the most important exhortations for the life of the believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And this is so fitting. In my Bible, I have a footnote beside the word worthy. Do you? Do you? I have a footnote in the ESV. Within verse 27, the translation can also be legitimately, and some translations carry this, only behave as citizens worthy. Interesting. What does that remind you of? Our series title right here. Citizens of heaven. Your citizenship is in heaven. And right here in verse 27, a legitimate translation is only, again, let your behavior be that of citizens worthy. So Paul is highlighting our series theme. Now, why is this important? Why does Paul keep coming back to behave as citizens worthy? Remember, Philippi was part of the Roman colony, a massive privilege in that day. To be part of a Roman colony, to be a Roman citizen, tremendous pride, Uh, tremendous value in that earthly citizenship. Uh, To be part of the colony of Rome came great advantages and benefits. A tremendous sense of civic pride. And think of all the people that desire to come to Canada. For all our faults, this nation's pretty spectacular when you think about it. At least it has been up until this point. And all the people that want to come here again for all the faults of Canada, they come here for the advantages, the privileges, the freedoms, the blessing, the grace of God, the general grace of God given again through a nation like this, the ability to do this right now. I'd say maybe fivefold, tenfold, though, in the context of Philippians, what it meant to be filled with the pride of, of belonging again to the colony of Rome. 
But notice here in the text, Paul doesn't condemn citizenship of Rome, but he calls for a higher citizenship heaven. It's okay to take joy in your, in your citizenship as a Canadian or American if you are here or whatever else. It's, 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 it's not wrong to do that as long as we put it in the reality though of where true citizenship really lies and the great value. You know Paul's saying? So he's like, you gotta behave as a citizen worthy of the place you're actually from and where you belong to. The place that you've been born from. Think of it this way. Here's where Paul's going with this and he's not, he's not afraid to set the bar pretty high. And we can't be either. How can we be born from above and yet live for below? Ask me that. I mean, I just heard, answer that right now. Let me ask you that. If you are a new creation, if you are a child of the king, if you have been adopted into the family of God, if you literally have a, a house waiting for you in heaven, if you are a sheep that belongs to the good shepherd, if you've been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, if you have been made new, if you are literally, again, transferred from the power of Satan to God, how is it then that we continue to live for the world and earthly rotten riches? How is it? Isn't it theologically supposed to be pretty difficult to do in the long term, if not impossible? If you have been born again, should you not now live for the one who has caused you to be born again? That's where Paul's going. Should we not live in a different light and way than those around us who are dead in sin and Satan? Well, the answer is, of course. But see, this becomes the problem of the church. So many people in the church and calling themselves Christians, there's no difference between them and the world. So we're behaving as citizens unworthy. But Paul says here in his warning, he says, no, no, no. You've got to behave as citizens worthy. One commentator calls us to consider Luke 12, verse 48. Consider this in light of this. Everyone, Jesus says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. Tell me, can you be given anything more than salvation in Jesus Christ? I mean, really, can, can you and I be given anything more than being born again by the Holy Spirit of God to become a child of God? Is there any greater gift we can receive? Is there any greater riches that we can receive? So the question then becomes, if this is true for you and I, if we have been given the eternal, immeasurable riches found in Jesus Christ, how are we using them? See how so many people, and this may be a word for some right now, so many people say they're in Christ. So many people, again, say that they're Christians. But the reality is they'll stand before Christ in the end. And, but Lord, I did this, Lord, I did that. And Jesus is like, I never, I never knew you. That was just a facade. You weren't living a life based on the reality of what you say that you had. And it's such an important moment. Just so many across this nation they say one thing, but they're living a total other thing. And the reality which Jesus warned us, they will stand before him to give an account and find out that it's all been fake. I wonder then Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, again, Paul is unapologetically here placing a high bar before the Philippians. Why? Their status must lead to their service. Their service doesn't earn them their status. Their status leads to their service, right? Here's a way to look at it, okay? Here's gospel declaration, gospel obligation. Here's what's happening in, 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 in Philippians in our text right now. Here's what happens throughout the whole New Testament as well, okay? You gotta see this, okay? So the declaration is those saved by grace through faith, alive in Christ, born again, means this. 
The declaration is, I am alive in Jesus Christ. We call this gospel indicative. Indicative means point to the past. This is what has been true. Jesus has saved me. I am alive fully by him. If then you've been raised with Christ. He did it. I didn't do it. He did it. All grace. All grace. Born again. Fully by 100% the spirit of God. The declaration is, you are justified. You are saved in Christ. His doing. But now comes the obligation. You can't be saved in Jesus Christ and then just sit there and hoard your minas, what he's given to you, and bury them and nothing happens. You can't just sit there and say, yeah, I'm in fire insurance, now I'll live my life the way I want to. That's theologically impossible. The obligation comes, because I'm alive in Jesus Christ, I must now live in and for Jesus Christ, which is gospel imperative. The indicative must lead to the imperative. Now, theologically speaking, loved ones, you can't separate these two things. When this actually happens, this must also actually happen. When you are justified, you must begin the process of sanctification, growing more like Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul says unapologetically, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, if you're really in, then you're going to live your life according to it. Now, you're not earning. You're not earning favor here. You are responding in love to the love that you've been given. Very powerful and important theology, which is the pattern of the entire New Testament. So notice what Paul says next here in verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. So notice what Paul's doing now. He's like, listen, don't wait for me to get there, church of Philippi. I might get there, I might not, but in the end, take initiative now. Live your life worthy of the gospel. That's a good word, because some of us rely too much on others. The church could be like, well, when Paul gets here, I mean, Paul's the guy, that he's our leader. Paul's the one who knows he's got this special connection to God. We just need Paul to get here, and when Paul gets here, then we'll start getting active. When Paul gets here, then we'll know what to do. And Paul's like, no, 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 you got the word of God and the spirit of God. Are you alive in Jesus Christ right now in this place? You have the word of God and the spirit of God. I mean, what else do you really need? Do you rely too much on other people? Do you rely over, are you overly dependent upon a pastor? Are you overly dependent upon a friend? Are you overly dependent upon a group leader? Are you overly dependent upon a parent? And I just want to kind of stick close to my parent because I just kind of ride the coattails of their faith. Well, that doesn't work in the end. Now hear me, hear me, the body of Christ is essential, essential for growth in Christ. But at the end of the day, we are responsible for ourselves. You can't stand at the end for Jesus and be like, well, my dad was saved, so aren't I then? That's not going to work. We are responsible for ourselves, but we are accountable to others. And I love that. And Paul says, whether I come in person or hear from a, a distance, it's paraphrasing, is like I'm anticipating the encouragement of your progress in the faith. You see that? But Paul's like, you're responsible for yourself, but we're accountable to one another. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And what he does next now is he starts to unpack, and here's what I expect to see. Here's what a life looks like when they're living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Are we living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel? We're going to find out. And we're going to pray this as we go along too. Turning this outline into a prayer. 
What are the indicators that my life is being lived in a manner worthy of the gospel? How do I know when I'm on track? Another example of this in our text today. Three main indicators. I'm living my life to be worthy of the gospel. Point number one A then is this. Oh, oh that we might be steadfast. Steadfast. Persevering, standing firm, standing strong. This is one of the great indicators of a life living worthy of the gospel. And loved ones, think, think steadfast in the gospel. Verse 27, let's break down what it means to be steadfast here. He says, standing firm in one spirit. So see what's happening here? Um, Only warning, let your life be worthy of the gospel. I'm gonna come to you or hear, I wanna see or hear this, that you are standing firm in one spirit. That means um, to be firmly committed in conviction. It's a decided mind. This was actually, um, standing firm was a military term used to describe a soldier on a battlefield. A soldier taking position, um, holding ground. Think of when um, some of the great, great wars over the course of history, you had a group of soldiers, they entrenched themselves in a position. They, 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 they took the high ground and, and the command was, don't, don't, don't let that ground go. Whatever it costs, do not, if we lose that ground, we lose everything. We must take the hill. We must keep the hill. We must entrench ourselves in this place because if we lose this part of the battlefield, then the whole thing is lost. That's the gospel. Stand firm, entrench yourselves in the gospel in the reality that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again, that we are saved by grace through faith from our sins, which we cannot save ourselves, only Jesus Christ. Just just keep the treasure of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit in the gospel. Because notice in verse 27, notice, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And notice at the end of verse 27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So verse 27 is a gospel sandwich. Everything within this is about the gospel. All the imperatives and the commands are surrounded in the truths of the gospel. So when you think of standing firm, it's not just, I'm going to make it another day. No, 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 you're standing firm in the truths, again, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if you lose the gospel, you lose everything. Think about over time. Think of the organizations. Think of the church, the denominations that have lost footing in the gospel. How does that end up? Never good. Here's an example I read just, just recently, like this week, in this great book I was reading. How about um, the YMCA? George Williams started the YMCA in 1844. Um, it was a Bible study for displaced young men. It became known as the Young Men's Christian Association, YMCA. As proven by its name, Christ was at its core. It involved Bible studies, prayer meetings, and spiritual transformation in young men. Its founding motto came from Jesus' prayer in John 17, that all may be one, The YMCA spread across the ocean from England to the United States, powerfully used in the U.S. Um, uh, Real strong man of God like D.L. Moody attached themselves to it and others. I didn't know this. In 1888, the YMCA developed a foreign missionary arm called the Student Volunteer Movement, which was said to be one of the most successful missionary recruiting organizations of all time. They commissioned over 20,000 missionaries for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over time, though, The mission was challenged, weakened. In the next decades, revenue started to decline. The YMCA started to emphasize fitness and downplay biblical training. 
to the point in the 70s, 1970s, and 80s, the YMCA reinvented itself into a family fitness center, and they had a song named after it as well. It wasn't long ago that the YMCA featured their honored history on their website. Even like 10 years ago, the YMCA would have featured the true Christian story of their history, but now they have sanitized that story and watered it down greatly. In fact, in 2010, the YMCA dropped everything but the Y. And just referred to as the Y, as we all often say it that way too. You going to the Y? Listen, how important. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. See what happens? Like the temptation to start, like you, you, you lose that ground, all of a sudden it becomes, you know, and that's, that's not to say there aren't certain chapters of the YMCA that are still trying to fulfill their original intent and mission, because there are some. But as a whole, we know there is no gospel anymore. There is no Christ-centered training. There is no ground that is being held for things of eternal purposes. Think of the churches that have failed to stand firm in the gospel. What happens to a church or denomination all around us? We're driving by the buildings every day. There's still some around. But those buildings now are being sold at a weekly rate. Think about it. You lose the gospel and you lose any significant, relevant spiritual power. Isn't it interesting, too, that the articles written in recent years, like in the last couple of years, the articles in our nation, there's studies going out, the strongest growing churches are the churches that are considered orthodox in the Christian faith. The churches that are conservative, the Christians that are robust in doctrine, the, the, the churches that are holding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is proven now. These are the churches that are growing. These are the churches that are strong. These are the churches, and all the other, mainline, whatever it is, you lose the gospel, and they're just, they're just pittering out. They're just, they're just starting to fade away. Even the secular world is recognizing that. We shouldn't be surprised. It's right here. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And notice the text says, standing firm in one spirit. One spirit. What does that mean, one spirit? Well, there's much debate here. Is one spirit, commentators debate, is one spirit Holy Spirit or is one spirit like unity in Christ spirit? I think I'll say this. I think I'll say this. Anyone who is void of the gospel is only a matter of time before they are void of the Holy Spirit. And if you are void of the Holy Spirit, good luck in any chance of having any real unity in the Spirit as well. By the way, probably read six, seven, eight commentators on this one phrase, and the commentators would lean slightly towards this is a Holy Spirit reference. One of the reasons we see that, if you look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, in the context here, look at the last part of that verse. And Paul says, Philippians 4.1, stand firm thus in the Lord. So it's a very, very similar phrase. And Paul then is saying, in the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we relate that back to our standing firm in one spirit and say that's a good indication he could be meaning the Holy Spirit of God. And doesn't that make sense too? Do we stand a chance of standing firm, of holding our ground by ourselves? No. But do we stand a chance by resting in the Holy Spirit of God? And seeing him strengthening, empowering us for the gospel, I mean, that, that's, that's the only way. That's the only hope. To be steadfast by standing firm. Chapter 1, verse 27 continues. Here's what steadfastness looks like. You want to live your life worthy of the gospel? Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, this is interesting, too. Striving is another military term. It's the image of soldiers fighting side by side. Now think of the well-trained army that moves in unison. 
the well-trained army moving as one person, as one unit. I go in streaks in my life through learning and get through certain fads. I went through a streak a number of years ago of the American Civil War. Kind of dove in and just was fascinated by it and all the different things that happened, even all the religion found within that. Christianity is amazing. But So I started to kind of study and watch movies and read books and stuff like that, but just kind of fascinated. It was just kind of the end of that like Napoleonic type of warfare where the soldiers would stand side by side in the two different roles, one kneeling and one standing, and they would be there in these formations. And they just kind of present themselves to be just nailed, but they would do this, and one guy falls, the next guy stands right back up in line, and there they are, striving side by side, fighting this battle in this war, whatever the cost. That's really what the Bible is saying here right now. It's that important. It's, it's, it's we're fighting for the most important thing there is. And notice, don't, don't miss the meaning behind the verbs that the Holy Spirit's choosing Paul to write. Two military terms, indicating battle, indicating fights, indicating the war that is raging, indicating the battle that the Christian life is, indicating the battle the church faces, indicating the battle of life and death, darkness versus light, the power of Satan versus the power of God, Acts 26. And notice our text says, with one mind striving side by side. One mind can be translated one soul, one man, one purpose. See what's happening here? There's crystal clear clarity on who the enemy is. There's one mind, one soul, one purpose. You don't have these army fighting against one another. When Christians fight against each other, then of course there is no unity. But notice what we're fighting for in the text. For the faith of the gospel. If you lose the gospel, you lose everything. Question for you right now. In terms of the relevance of verse 27, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, fighting together for the truth of the gospel in love, with boldness, with gentleness, but again with, with great conviction. What do you and I maybe need to let go in our lives right now? The things we're... Well, what are you and I fighting for right now? What are the issues in our lives that seem so important to us? And then hold them up versus the gospel. Let the gospel be the filter of the grievances we have with other people, with the issues that we face in jealousy and insecurity, with the goals we want in life, and sometimes how much we fight against one another for things in the end. If you really compare them to the fight of faith of the gospel, it may not be that important at all. So just take a moment right now. What maybe do we need to let go of that we're fighting so hard for right now and really, in essence, compared to the light of the gospel, wasting our time, wasting our energy? In the end, it's not going to matter anyways. Wouldn't it be so powerful if you could just be like, just to care about this, all this bitterness, this unforgiveness, all this jealousy, whatever it is, fighting, strife, discord, and just be like, in light of the gospel, pfft, that doesn't matter. By the way, loved ones, what happens when a big dose of persecution comes in? When a big dose of persecution comes in the church, all of a sudden, you're not so worried about who's singing on the platform and who isn't. All of a sudden, you're not so worried about what seat you get to sit in. You're just desperate for anyone who has a seat who loves the Lord Jesus Christ that you can partner with for the gospel. Isn't that interesting? When persecution comes in, perspective comes in. You're not complaining about which song is being sung. 
You're not complaining again about whether or not. You're just so glad to have the word of God and people who love the Lord Jesus Christ that you can be together and fight the cause for the faith of the gospel and all these secondary issues fall off to the wayside. Isn't that interesting? Lord, help us to live like that right now because that's the reality of what we should live for. Oh, how silly we can be. The calling to be striving side by side for the, for the faith of the gospel. Lord, help us to let go of that which is limiting our steadfastness in you. Oh, to be steadfast. Oh, to be standing, striving in the gospel. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. Point 1B now. Oh, that we might be courageous. That we might be courageous. Look at verse 28. Paul says, and, so and is continuing. You want to live a life worthy of the gospel? Well, here's another. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. So the Greek word for here, not frightened, only occurs here in the New Testament, nowhere else. And every single commentary and commentator highlighted that this word was used to describe horses that were startled on the battlefield. Now that's a good image for us, because I think we've seen enough movies or maybe probably haven't seen a horse confronting war, but in movies we have, and you see the image, often the horse is nervous and agitated and tense and apprehensive, and they might buck or they let out sounds and they, they just want to see me and they want to kind of, they're so nervous they want to go in the other direction. That's what's being described here right now. Paul's like, don't be frightened like that. In the midst of a battle, again, another, another kind of military kind of picture. How true for so many Christians in our day who are so nervous apprehensive, frightened by culture, fearful of persecution. I get it, I get it. I face my challenges too. Think of the context in Philippi, the Roman pressure to conform, the intimidation of Roman power and influence, the powerful politicians, the mighty Roman soldiers, all held up against this small, frail, in some ways pathetic in the world's eyes, church at Philippi, these meager, weak Christians called to love and grace yet trying to defend the faith in the gospel, which is so new to them. I mean, it's such a beautiful picture of the underdog kingdom that is found in Jesus Christ. And Paul says, hey, church, don't be frightened. Don't be frightened. Be courageous in the face of opposition. How? Why? How, Paul? How? Two reasons in verse 28. Two reasons, and they all, they both have to do with eschatology, end times. Why are we not afraid in the midst of opposition Number one, because those who oppose Christ will be destroyed. Verse 28, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction. Jesus doesn't mince words either, does he? How clearly he says, and if you're not on my side, man, it is not going to end well. But to be on the side of Jesus Christ, you are on the side of life. Hey, hey, just a word right now. Like, people here right now are... Are you in the side of Jesus Christ? And you're like, and you know right now you're not. You're not. In love. Like if I didn't say this to you, I wouldn't be loving you right now. You have to understand. If you're not in the side of Jesus Christ, then you're against Jesus Christ. If you're against Jesus Christ, destruction is the result. Not a friend of God, an enemy of God, it says in Romans 5. Like just think about that for a second. What is so important about this life to hold on to, to be an, an opponent of God himself? Because to reject Jesus Christ is to say, I don't believe you, I don't, I hate you. Uh, the gospel's nothing. 
And just, just, take, just take a moment in the midst of the earth, earthly chaos, the, the, the rampant idolatry. Just take a moment and just ask yourself, what, what am I really doing? And why am I really doing it? And this is love, by the way. Love tells you of the reality of where you're headed. An absence of love would be like, good luck with that. Let's see how it goes. It's clear here, there's a clear sign to them of their destruction. So that's the first reason that we can have courage. The second reason is, those who love Christ are saved. Verse 28 says, but of your salvation and that from God. So two things are happening here. You oppose Christ, you're destroyed. You're in Christ, you're saved. So the single greatest reason we have courage in the gospel is eternal life and salvation. Think about that. It gives us every reason in the world to be courageous because of the life that we are living, the world that is coming, the reality of our hope of glory. So I'm sitting on this passage this week in my office here at the church and at the desk, and I'm just like, man, living a life of such courage in this way and knowing the only thing that matters is life in Christ, citizenship in heaven. And I just turn and kind of look to my left and, and taped on my wall beside me, which was there for many, many months, was the testimony of of John Huss, one of the early, early reformers. And I read it, and I'm like, this is perfect. On the screen for you. John Huss, the bohemian reformer, was burned at the stake in 1415. Before his accusers lit the fire, they placed on his head a crown of paper with painted devils on it. He answered this mockery by saying, my Lord Jesus, my Lord Jesus Christ, for my sake wore a crown of thorns. Why should I not I then? For his sake wear this light crown, be it ever so humiliating. Truly, I will do it willingly. After the wood was stacked up to Huss's neck, just imagine that, the Duke of Bavaria asked him to renounce his preaching, trusting completely in God's word. Huss replied, in the truth of the gospel which I preached, I die willingly and joyfully today. Really? Wow. The wood was ignited, and Huss died while singing. Died while singing. Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, have mercy on me. How is that possible? Our text is telling us today how it's... Like, talk about a life living in a manner worthy of the gospel. Wow, that's it. Like, pushed to the end, the result is that, hus. Pushed to the end. If if, if, If our theology is as tight and sound as it should be, impacting mind and heart... That's the result. Kill me because I'm going to glory. Even to the point of singing when it happens. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. All to be steadfast and courageous. And such a, that, that illustration is a beautiful lead into our final point. Oh, that we might be willing to suffer. Where do you get that? Verse 29. Notice. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Now look closely here. Do not miss this. This is a massive point of maturity in the Christian life. Do you want to be a mature disciple of Christ? I mean, you, you, you must pay attention to this. Have you been kind of um, frustrated with your lack of growth, this could be one of the great, great parts of the difference between growing uh, with great uh, momentum in Christ and staying where you are in stagnancy. Right here in this verse. 
Notice, it has been granted to you to believe, okay? Now, we love that part. We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. God's gift of faith, uh, believing in Jesus Christ, I'm saved, I'm so excited about that. It's been granted to us, we love that, but it doesn't stop there, notice. But it's also been granted to you also to suffer. Wait, 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 time out, time out. That's the part we don't like so much, right? Well, yeah, I love the belief in faith and all the blessings that come, but granted also to suffer. Now, now just let's just take a moment here. Notice, granted to you. Granted to you literally means to give freely or give graciously. In fact, the equivalent noun to the verb used here in verse 29 of granted, the equivalent vow, uh, noun means grace. Okay, ready? I don't think we are, by the way. Here it is. Ready? Ready? Here's the truth we're learning from verse 29. Suffering is the grace of God upon our lives. Suffering is the grace of God upon our lives. According to verse 20, Paul's like, Lovins, just try to, try to wrap your mind around this theology. Suffering is God's grace to us. I'm just telling you what the text says. It has been granted to you. Hey man, you're in luck today. God's given you some suffering. We don't think that way. We don't, in our North American, Western world of individualism and self-preservation and accumulation of this and that and and Jesus is like, yeah, I don't operate according to the Western world. Think about that. The grace of God will often come in the form of suffering. Why? Really? Yes, why? Because he loves us. Because he wants us to understand we're not living for this world. He wants us to realize our citizenship is in heaven. He's trying to prepare us for the reality of the rest of eternity. And notice what it says there in the text. It says, suffer for his sake. Ah, there it is. You see, you see, you see? Do we really love the Lord Jesus Christ? Do we really value the inheritance we received in Jesus Christ? If we know we've been given everything, then we're willing to suffer for him because we've already been given everything we could ever want in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is then why Jesus says in Luke chapter six, he says this, blessed are you, blessed means happy, fulfilled, supremely blessed. Blessed are you when people hate you, what? And when they exclude you, what? And revile you, huh? And spurn your name as evil. What are you talking about, Jesus? On account of the son of man, see? Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. What? Rejoice and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in, tell me, there it is. Like, there it is again. All the theology of the New Testament coming together right now. And the totality of Scripture. You see, wait, 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 wait. Blessed and fulfilled when people hate me and exclude me and revile me and spurn me and call me evil? What? On the account of Christ, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. 
because in that moment we recognize who we are truly living for. I'm telling you, man, I told like, like, this is the difference between like the men and boys of the Christian faith, the girls and the women of the Christian faith. Right here, like, like this is the dividing line of immaturity and maturity. God teach us, God help us, God, God convince us. See what Paul's saying? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Making sense now, eh? Steadfastness, courage, the willingness to suffer. Worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the gospel. Philip Bliss was a tremendous hymn writer, I think, in the 1800s. He also wrote many melodies. He actually wrote the melody to Horatio Spafford's hymn, It Is Well. He had a tragic death in a train accident, leaving two very young boys behind, him and his wife. Wonderful man, loved the Lord, wrote many, many hymns. I read a little bit of his bio a couple years ago, and in the end of his bio, they had this hymn he wrote called My Prayer. And ever since I saw that, I placed it in my Bible. And... Um, I just thought it was a wonderful, wonderful summary of verse 27. Live your life in a manner worthy of God. Let me just, on the screen for you, let me just go through these. This has become a prayer for me. Um, I've never heard it put to music. More holiness give me, more strivings within. More patience in suffering. More sorrow for sin. More faith in my Savior. More sense of his care. More joy in his service more purpose in prayer. More gratitude give me, more trust in the Lord, more zeal for his glory, more hope in his word, more tears for his sorrows, more pain at his grief, more meekness in trial, more praise for relief. More purity give me, more strength to overcome, love this, more freedom from earth stains, more longings for home, more fit for the kingdom, more useful I'd be, more blessed and holy, more savior like thee. Kind of wraps it all up, doesn't it? To live your life worthy of the gospel. Why do we ultimately live a life worthy of the gospel? Ready, ready? Because of the gospel. Jesus Christ was sent from heaven to earth. He took on the flesh of man. He lived the perfect life. He allowed himself to be subjected to being falsely accused, to undergoing a mock trial or a joke trial. He was slapped. He was spit upon. He was scourged. He was tortured. He allowed himself to be crucified to a cross and hang there for hours in one of the worst possible deaths you could possibly endure. At the right time, he lifted up his voice and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said, it is finished. At that moment, we understand that Jesus Christ was bearing the punishment for our sins and taking on the very wrath of God on our behalf. Jesus Christ did this. He went through all of this because of his unspeakable and unfathomable love upon every sinner who has ever lived. Jesus Christ took on our sin, and he died, was in the tomb for three days, when the third day he rose from the dead. 
And the moment he is raised from the dead, that is an indication and guarantee in full that his payment for sin was accepted by God the Father. When Jesus Christ is raised from the dead, at that moment, instantly death is defeated. Death is no more. For any person then who places their faith for the forgiveness of their sins in Jesus Christ will never die. They will live with Jesus Christ forever and ever. The hope of glory is with them for sure, guaranteed. The Holy Spirit comes and lives within them. They are a new creation again, a child who belongs to the King. Jesus Christ subjected himself to the worst of worth, to the death of all deaths, that you and I could sit here now with the hope of all hopes, and then in response to the love that he has given to us in the gospel, to then count ourselves to be worthy of that gospel and have our lives prove it, not so we can earn his favor, we can tell him how much we love him. This is why then, the only remembrance Jesus has commanded to be repeatedly observed is the Lord's Supper, where we remember his body and blood and all that he went through, listen, loved ones, to remind us of the call to live lives worthy of the gospel. When you hold the symbols of the bread and juice, you are reminded of him who did everything that we might now, again, remind ourselves to live with everything for him who is worthy. The juice and the bread are stacked together in the tray. You take a stack of cups, two at once. The Lord's Supper is for those who are saved in Jesus Christ, alive in Jesus Christ. If you are not alive in Jesus Christ today, if you're not born again, if you're not in a relationship, please don't do this. It's a serious thing. The Bible warns against that. But we invite you right now to consider, would you not give your life to Jesus Christ with faith and forgiveness that you might be saved, not destroyed, and be so filled with the love of Jesus Christ to never die again. The communion servers, you can come right now. Right now, you can come and go to your stations. And as a church, we will, we will pray together. Let's pray. Father, live your life worthy in a manner worthy of the gospel. And so I pray right now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember what you did. You suffered, you tortured I just think of those people who spat on you and slapped you in the face and mocked you. I can't imagine doing that to the very Son of God and then died, gasping for breath, taking on our sin, our sin, our sin, my sin, your sin. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. God, forgive us when we take for granted your death and take for granted your resurrection and take for granted the gospel. But help us again, Lord, to live a life worthy of this gospel. Even as we hold these symbols now, the bread and the juice, just um, create in us a deep, deep reverence, a deep, deep gratitude, and a deep, deep resolve to make our lives count for you. May it be so. In Jesus' name.